You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. What's happening in the world of legalities and the world of law? And some of you said, no, Shafat, it's law and disorder. Yeah, okay. Don't talk about our judiciary system. Don't talk about our minister police. Please, people, we're not talking about that. This evening, we got a powerful topic, very powerful topic indeed. Why isn't the state held culpable for alcoholism and its repercussions? And you know what? When uh, I phoned our attorney, Hafiz Muhammad Kuvadia, and uh, he said, Shafaz, what topic would you like to discuss? And I said, Muhammad, you know, a man of your stature, you could be giving me the topic because you've done two million or three million cases. You've been out of the country. You fought cases in, I mean, you did, uh, you did the, you know, the winding of estates and conveyances in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And then you went to uh, the UAE, you went to Dubai. And one of the Arab princes, you know, they, they wanted to do a convey. You said, no, 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 the Arab thing, just hold it, just hold it. And, you know, but he's got so many things and he's got so much of experience. I really embrace and celebrate him uh, for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, someone that uh, I'm very fond of. And I can tell, there's he, give me a, what a lovely smile. I'll tell you, Muhammad, come here, let me hug you. <laughs> ah, that's a lovely hug. Yes, let's welcome him, our very own, and welcome you. The listeners of Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, with our attorney, Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Tell me, who handed that E, Minyar? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'm glad you added a bit of humor there. I was hoping for you to, to, to inform the audience about how the Arab chef wanted to give me his daughter. But that's not true, so you wouldn't put it through to them. But um, that would have been a nice cherry on the cake. They've got the Arab sheikh's daughter, and maybe my father-in-law could have been a sheikh. But alhamdulillah, jazakallah, you're too kind, you're too generous once again for having me on to your show. And inshallah, inshallah, this beautiful evening, we'll be able to do justice to our topic, inshallah. Now, I tell you, Muhammad, I'm going to tell the listeners this. You know what? Daisy, they're right in front of me. Looks like, you look like an Arab sheikh yourself. So, you know what? I mean, you do it. You do it the right way. Junubi Africa, you're from here. You do your dawah. And as I said, uh, you know, our topic is very current, very relevant. And, you know, it's a, a, it's something uh, that, uh, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen you to address it. Uh, but before that, you know, looking at the scenarios around us and looking at uh, the uh, crime uh, virtually gone out of control in this country. And it seems like, you know, fair is foul, and foul is fair. Mohammed? When shall we three meet again? Wow, Mac, but this guy knows his thing. When shall we three meet again? In, in thunder, lightning, That's and in rain. When the hurly-burly is done. Hurly is done when the battle and... lost a bunch of us. <laughs> <laughs> People, is don't it, start Mohammed and I. You bring back memories that go back half a century, and... Uh, uh, but but it's, it's, it shows how impressionable we are as youngsters. As much as you, you know, you've asked me a question, I can just say, and I've, and I've realized this in Dawa, and maybe to those people who are doing Dawa out there, the first thing that uh, enters a person's mind is his state of being. So, for example, we go to Madrasa, and we are taught about the oneness of Allah, and we taught about the basic Islamic principles, and like that, we, our education continues to grow. 
But what happens if somebody attacks a foundational belief? We automatically become resilient, like water off a duck's back, even though a person may come to you with the truth. So, for example, when we challenge Christians, we come to them with the truth, but because it was the first thing, it was the most impressionable thing that they had when their minds were still in a formative stage, that they assumed that this is the correct thing. So like that, Islam teaches us that a lot of times excuses of the, of the, of the disbelievers will be that we found our fathers doing this, that's why we do it. So this is what their fathers taught the children. <laughs> so the minds became impressionable and they assumed that this is the truth and this is the hug. So anything else that you say, you first have to break down boundaries. Boundaries that were created by their parents early formative years in nursery or in madrasa, church school. Whenever you address a person regarding an issue, and we all have these prejudices, let's be honest. I mean, a person who grows up in the Hanafi mother, for example, he, he, he becomes defensive of his position, irrespective. You know, Shafi would come to him and he say, no, no, you know, Hanafi is not better, and Hanafi this, and Hanafi that, and defends it. But it shows how impressionable we are, and we may have been reciting a few verses from Macbeth and from William Shakespeare, and the reality is, when you, divide, when you to, to matriculate nowadays, when you start reciting these verses, it sounds totally foreign, totally Greek. I say, did you guys not do the book, or do you guys don't do Shakespeare at all? And, you know, it's, 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 it's actually a loss to see the degradation of uh, the, 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 the syllabus in the schools nowadays. It's become, you know, and, and not only, even, even I must be honest, I mean, I feel that the level of legal professionals that are qualifying daily uh, is not the le same level that we would see 30, 40, and 50 years ago. And I'm not talking myself. I'm talking about the quality type of senior attorneys that qualified in the 60s and in the 70s and the challenges that they had to go through just to become an attorney. Remember, they, they were qualifying in an apartheid era. So automatically, jobs were reserved, jobs were scarce, positions in university were reserved. They, were, they curtailed the number of non-whites that could enter into universities. So everything was a challenge, even to fight, find a job. I mean, you hear some of the horror stories about some of these junior attorneys or candidate attorneys, at that time they were known as article clerks, who, who offered their services for free. And, you know... Uh, sometimes, you know, you'd find that the Jews who, who, who seemed to also in the early years to be the top um, top lawyers in the country, they took them on out of sympathy and they, you know, they paid them practically next to nothing and they gave them uh, the, the experience that they needed so that the, 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 these, these attorneys then grew in that uh, era and they seemed, you know, they when they qualified, they were cut above the rest, head and shoulders. These were attorneys, you know, you could see when you spoke to them that they had a passion for the English language. They were passionate about courts, procedure, you know, legal stuff. And um, I, I don't find, maybe, you know, it's, it's now the opportunity for the younger generation. And they live in a totally different era. I mean, today exams are online. It was something that was unheard of in mine and your era, Shafat. Today, lessons are online. Today, everything appears to be online. So much so you wonder to yourself, are they actually receiving the type of education? Are they going through the effort of traveling in the morning and in the evening, one hour, one hour? Are they going through the struggles of hunger during, during the day and uh, no money and, you know, just shortage of just resources? And so are they going through the same struggles, but are they getting the same type of education? And, you know, unfortunately, from what I'm seeing from the graduates, 
they're struggling to keep up with what the older generation left behind. So yeah, just, just to give an insight to maybe any aspiring legal uh, candidates there, people who would like to enter into the foray, you know, it was definitely was a different different era. era. Look at some of the senior advocates or those that have passed on in the last few years and the illustrious careers that they had and how they challenged the law, how they were competent in their field and how, you know, uh, it was admirable. I must be honest to you. I feel it was a different class of people. Yeah, Mohammed, uh, you know, Jazakallah for sharing that. I can talk to you about, uh, uh, there was an uh, advocate, I am Bawa, uh, who made an indelible impression on me. Uh, and subsequently, he ran uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the, he, he was very important in, in South Africa uh, in that he started off Dawa. Uh, he was a uh, an, an advocate uh, that, you know, came first in Oxford. I mean, that yeah. must have been in the 30s. Or he came first in Oxford. And as soon as he graduated, he went straight to Pakistan. And uh, the Pakistan, uh, or the Pakistani leader of that time told him, what are you doing in Pakistan? They need you more in South Africa. So this forced him to come back to South Africa. And uh, subsequently, you know, towards the latter stages of his life, there he was in, in the offices of the IPCI. And I was very privileged to be sitting next to him and imbibing so much of his knowledge. And, you know, he gave me so much of du'as and so forth. And one day he told me, you know, Shafaz, one day your voice will be heard on the, to, in, in the four corners of the globe. And I looked at him, I said, no, but uh, uh, Advocate, uh, I am Bawa. You know, this is the that. And it's not me. He said, no, no, my, my son, this is your du'a. Subsequently, when he went to Canada and he stayed with his son in these latter days of his life and he passed away there, he phoned me a week before. Uh, Muhammad, and he gave me the same du'as. So whenever I think of Advocate Ayam Bauer, he opened my eyes to the world. He conscientized me to the Zionism, you know, to Palestinian issues, things that I didn't know. And uh, this is why I'm so indebted to him. And, you know, he spoke the English like the pure, like the Queen's English. Is there any questions in court? You know, I will really put this in the right. You know, uh, that's the type of uh, way he spoke to me. But Alhamdulillah, you know, these are men that make indelible impressions. And perhaps, uh, you know, Muhammad, even you, you are blessed in this sense. You know, you got into the field and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you a double bonus in your life in that, you know, you became a world-class da'i now, you know, appearing on many platforms and, you know, very confident of uh, what you are doing. And, you know, I recall I met Don Matera who just passed away a few days ago, ago Rahimullah. I believe you also hosted him, uh, Muhammad. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Just just while before I come to Don, I, I'd like to remind our listeners also that we we know Alamai Baal for his poetry and, you know, um, for his eloquence in the Uru language, but we forget mm. from time to time that he was also a legal person. He was a lawyer. He graduated in in, in UK somewhere. could have been Oxford. I'm not even sure. And uh, the, these were part of the new Pakistan. You know, the foundation stones of Pakistan were placed by some of these people. Uh, Gandhi as well. I mean, going to legal school, coming back, making changes, political changes in their time. So it's admirable to find the changes made. And, and, and alhamdulillah, you know, Allah has placed us, given us these opportunities, and we should try to strive to be the changes in our community, the changes in our decade. And uh, inshallah, that take us from success, uh, from success to success. But at the same time, you're mentioning something very, very important. Our friend Umaruddin Don Matera, of course. Yes, um, it was it was a great sadness that we learned um, of the passing of uh, Umar Matera, and um, I had the personal fortune of being with him many times. 
Uh, on one occasion, we shared a platform when we, in, we were in Benoni, and uh, we had to host um, DAO, uh, DAO we had to host a, a public talk to especially non-Muslims, to Christian audiences in the community. And he was the guest speaker, so it was myself. Uh, I was actually the MC that uh, that day, so uh, my my work was quite easy. We had Molana Aku, and um, we had our special guest Don Matera. And amongst the audience was a group of young children, young youngsters, early teens, maybe even a few years younger than that. And he called them to the front when he started speaking, and he made this a point to speak to them especially. So he called them to the front and he started talking to them about his life of gangsterism, about his life of gunshots, wounds, fights coming from Western and Westbury and in a very bad uh, environment in the community. And then how as a six-year-old, he had to board the train and then he had to go to a Catholic school. He came there and he spoke about the nuns and I don't remember the final details except that as a young, young boy, he had to go through personal training and, you know, poetry became, and writing became his, his best friend. Um, so he boards the train and he goes somewhere in Kimberley, I think it was, or somewhere there, and he goes and he starts, gets into this uh, Catholic school, and he starts off his schooling career like that, you know. And he had these children mesmerized with the story of his life, how he then rose through all those, and even through all that, being a gangster that he was, being the writer that he was, and you know that he had written, many, many poems and columns and articles, and he was a regular site in the local newspapers at that time. And how he journeyed to Islam, you know, he was sitting outside the masjid, and his um, interaction with a certain Colonel Amiruddin, Colonel Amiruddin, and how Colonel invited him into the masjid, and he sat at the back there, very shy, very quiet, not knowing what's going to happen, and he says that was how his life changed. And his time changed. And what I liked about him is that he became a Muslim. He became an inspiration to many people to change their lives. Muslims changing their lives and non-Muslims alike changing their lives, becoming better people. And even better than that, becoming Muslims. Many people accepted Islam through his, uh, through his efforts, through his work. And people respected him because he was the type of person who commanded respect. He wasn't just a nobody. His knowledge, his, his, his understanding, his insight, you know, in the in the times that he would, uh, I would when, when I would meet him, I would try as far as possible to invite him home, maybe you can have a meal together. But those few hours, the kids loved it. My kids loved him. He was like a grandfather figure to them. He would mm-hmm. tell them stories. He would read from, from memory. He would recite poems. He would come and he would, you know, he would give out his books also here to the kids. And he would autograph them. So I've got a, number, a few books autographed by him. And alhamdulillah. These are the people that we can really honestly say that deserve to be Muslim. They carried the flag of Islam even more than what the politicians today carry the flag of Islam. Today, we many of the people, public figures, are Muslims by name. What, what semblance of Islam is there in their life? But when you sit and you look at how these people sacrificed their previous lives, how they came out, and how they continue to do good work, his heart was in the community till the last, you know. He was embittered about some of the political changes that were happening in the country. He was better that, you know, even till the last, there was no support from government for him. As much as they all the pomp and ceremonies there, nobody heard his stories in the recent past. He never even had a home to his name. 
until two years ago. I think this this last home he received in the last year or two in Protea. But until then, you know, he struggled and he struggles with many financial resources was very limited. People don't know about this. This about him. Very few people may know it, but we had the opportunity to interact and it's a sad state of affairs, but nonetheless, he is a person that we can proudly say is our is our Muslim brother. We make dua for him. We pray that Allah gives him the highest highest stages in Jannah because he deserves it. He truly deserves it. And uh, yes, um, so yeah, thank you for bringing that up. It's, it's something that you know uh, we we don't share very often, but uh, we can share it with our beautiful audience this evening. Well, absolutely, and Muhammad, you know. Uh... I don't know how you read my mind then. I wanted to know from you how did he end up in uh, Lanasia, which is, I believe, a predominantly an Indian area. And, you know, I, was, I, I, I think uh, one of your friends, I think it was uh, uh, it was senior attorney, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ashraf Isub sent me a tiny clip where he even used the name, you know, the people were calling me, your your your, your boosman and all. <laughs> I mean, he just called a spade a spade. I mean, you say a word like this, uh, derogatory, but uh, he was telling the kids that, this is what they call me and hey, what you're doing here. And you, you know, he says his drunken friend called him to the mosque and he said, you know, and he saw, you, talk, you spoke about the colonel just giving him a look and he said, what you're doing here and what you want to, because he, he had a reputation. But the sad part is, as you said, uh, you know, these people that revert to Islam, powerful figures indeed. And, you know, in the, even the old age, uh, perhaps we're missing something. We should be taking care of people like this. And sometimes, you know, uh, they just leave this dunya as uh, people that were disgruntled with maybe the community too, Mohammed. That is unfortunately the reality. I mean, it's, it would be um, uh, 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 inappropriate for me to mention names. But I can tell you of senior people in our community that were only respected after their passing. People only recognize their true worth after they passed away. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, um, this is the condition of us as Muslims that we don't take care of our senior people, or don't take care of our aged people. We don't recognize people in the course of their lives. And then when it's too late, we want to post-mortem them, recognize them for the effort. So, um, yes, yes, it's a sickness. It's a condition that we have. Um, you know, we, we, we need to look at this very carefully. And um, uh, maybe, maybe John Matera was one example. Also, I must say, I've got a picture with him. Uh, even when I spoke to him at one stage, I said, um, were you ever given a certificate to show that you are Muslim? I mean, you know, people mm. know you as Muslim. And he said, what are you talking about? And I showed him the certificates that we issued to non-Muslims. He said, please write me out a certificate. I want a certificate to show that I'm a Muslim and I want to, if I die at any stage, then I want to be buried in a Muslim cemetery. And that was his wish, and, and uh, you know, okay, I don't know if you're aware of the debacle or the misunderstanding here. You are supposed to be buried here in our local Lanasia Cemetery, the Avalon Cemetery. And I understand that at the 11th hour, then uh, the politicians then got involved and said, you know what, we've got a hero's corner here in the um, West Park Cemetery where Jesse Duarte was then buried the previous day, and we'll take care of all the expenses and, you know, but his intention wasn't that. His intention was never to be buried like a hero. His intention was to be buried like a simple person in a simple graveyard, possibly unmarked, and that would have been uh, the life and struggles and the uh, passing of uh, Brother Umar. So just to let, I mean, obviously it was outside his control after he passed away, but I think personally in his heart, if he was given a choice, he would have said, rather bury me with the, with the ordinary people. I lived with them. I'd rather 
be buried next to them. Yeah, Muhammad. So you were at the funeral of uh, uh, Umar Din uh, Don Matera, and uh, t- t- tell us about it. How was the atmosphere? You know, we we got to know. Oh, you know, there's so many people and so many things. Let's hear it from you, Muhammad. I, I, I need to say this. Uh, firstly, I, I didn't attend the funeral because we were under the impression that the funeral is going to be held at 7:30 in Indonesia, and about mm-hmm. 7:15. I then we got the news that the funeral is not taking place in Indonesia. It's going to West Park Cemetery. And West Park Cemetery is about 30 kilometers from Indonesia. Uh, and then also, um, I was a bit reluctant to then drive there because I knew it's going to be quite late. But apart from that, uh, I, I understood that, you know, he, they, they, the politicians would turn this into a political event. And, you know, it would be then speeches and it would be a lot of un-Islamic behavior. Let's be honest about it, you know. Um, this is something done himself would not have approved of. And, and we as Muslims, we should stay clear from these types of events where uh, we, 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 which appear to resemble un-Islamic events. You know, a funeral should be, as our Nabi Sallallahu has showed us, a funeral should be. So, uh, yes, uh, you know, knowing full well that this is going to be something that will probably take place if they move it to West Park Cemetery, uh, a few of us then chose not to go and partake in those events there. So we make dua that, um, you know, Allah still forgives him for his shortcomings and uh, gives him the pardon and mercy and inshallah gives him a gentle fidelity, inshallah. Ameen, uh, Suma Ameen. And then uh, Dawn would have told the people, yeah, a chronic disease is ca- uh, characterized by uncontrollable or uncontrolled drinking and preoccupation with alcohol. And what that is, people, alcoholism is the inability to control drinking due to both physical and emotional dependence on Alcohol, depending on that bottle that ruins lives, that ruins societies, that ruins family, that ruins an individual, that ruins, nay, a whole country, it's ruining the world. Now, when you look at, uh, you know, you do a lot of uh, social work also when it comes to uh, rehab and so forth, and you talk about people succumbing to drugs and all that, but alcoholism, you know, you look at this country, it's uh, one of the top three, or maybe uh, Number one, I mean, they're just drinking kiloliters of alcohol every month. Uh, Muhammad, your thoughts? Just, just, just to just to bring the audience up to speed. I remember specifically Don Matera telling us, "I was a gangster. I was shot nine times, but I never smoked and I never drank." You know, that that in itself is an inspiration for people to 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 really understand who this man was at his level of. Um, of, of, of commitment, you know, and cleanliness to himself and respect for his body, respect for his religion, even before he became a Muslim. This was the nature of who he was. So, Shafat, getting into our topic this evening, and, you know, COVID taught us many, many lessons. And one of the lessons that we specifically learned from COVID was that in the early stages of COVID, we went into lockdown. And the lockdowns then varied three, four, five but at that time, what happened when we were at level five and alcohol was banned? You found that we freed up a lot of our resources and opportunities that we were not able to see because we were so bogged down. We were now able to see things became much clearer. The fog lifted, so to speak. You know, we looked at our hospitals. Doctors were coming back from work, actually saying to themselves, today was such a beautiful day. We attended people with cancer, we attended to people with diabetes, we attended, attended to people who had concerns and pains, and we were able to give them the time of day. 
because we were not, our casualty and our uh, hospital was not being bogged down with shootings and stabbings and killings and these types of related deaths. And we asked ourselves the question, what's the, what was the difference specifically? And there was only one conclusion is that, like Islam says, alcohol is the mother of all evils. That just by taking the alcohol, you're opening yourself and you're opening the community up to a lot of crime, to a lot of mischief, to a lot of unnecessary and, and, and lewd behavior, illicit behavior. So we, this was the lesson for us. And if we as a country, we as a world didn't see and benefit the lesson, then the lesson was lost. How much, like I'm talking, I just spoke about the hospitals and how much money was saved and how much of our resources was actually able to be put into what was deserved. How much more? Look at the police stations. The police stations were actually somewhere actually closed for days because there was a COVID breakout and nobody even felt that the police stations were, that, that they were inconvenienced by the fact that the police station was closed for days. But that was the reality. Hospitals, police stations, you know, um, public, public utilities, crime was down, statistics was down. For that particular period, for those few weeks, for those few months, there was a state of calmness in the community because people were more confident about their lives. And then, of course, unfortunately, because of the pressure of big business, because of the, polit uh, the, the pressure of political agents, we found that the government eventually had to relent. And relent for what? Relent to a state of degradation to where we are now. Ask those doctors. And, you know, I've got a family member that works in casualty in these hospitals. It's 40 patients a night. The other day on Card Blanche, they were saying, uh, in Cape Town, in Mitchell's Plain, every seven minutes, there's a new uh, admission in, in, in the hospital. And these admissions are what? Drug-related, alcohol-related. It was actually easier, and that was, this was the, the strange part, it was actually easier to get drugs during lockdown than it was to get cigarettes. If you spoke to a drug addict, he said, no, my merchant is still, he's still got access to, 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 to drugs, so no problem. Uh, we, we're still getting our drugs, but the, the alcoholic couldn't get his drugs. The, the smoker couldn't get his cigarettes. Just just goes to show what what type of a world we're living in, where the resources are, where things have become so you know where everything just seems to be so upside down. So yes, yes, we've got as as the state, we need to hold the state accountable in many ways. And one of the ways that we as a community should you know can use to our advantage is we had the lockdown. We had the lockdown two years ago, and it was exactly two years ago. Where so many lessons were learned. It was exactly two years ago that we saw that one of the most damaging, one of the most obvious damages to the community was alcoholism and the open sale of, of alcohol. Just ask yourself a question today when you go into the townships. There's many more Chabins, Tevans, illicit. Uh, uh, alcohol is to be found in these townships, in these uh, in these areas, so much more that you wonder that you know is there more taverns than there is supermarkets? Is there more taverns than there are libraries? Is there more taverns than there are schools? Is this what the condition of the communities have become? That the first thing they do is issue a liquor license, issue a liquor license, and issue a liquor license. And every week for the last three or four weeks, we're waking up after a weekend to find out that there's stabbings, shootings, killings. Even in Indonesia over this weekend, I don't know if you hear, we woke up to four people or five people being shot, killed 
in the in the local Skoda camp, Tembalishta Skoda camp, and that's like two kilometers. That's basically Indonesia. Now, this is this is as a result of what? This is a direct result of alcoholism. This is a direct result of the community degrading to a state of lawlessness because of one major contributing factor, and that's alcohol. So, so yes, we have a major problem in our community, and if we haven't learned the lesson coming from COVID, then we are totally blind. You know, Mohammed, uh, whilst we talk about alcoholism and uh, so forth, uh, but you find, uh, you know, these shabins, uh, they have uh, mushroomed up everywhere, and as you were uh, talking recently, we had all these uh, tavern killings and uh, so forth, but you find, you know, uh, they'll write there, drink responsibly. How can you drink responsibly? Number two, they say 18. You know, you must be above 18. How are you engaging when children as young as 10, 11 are becoming mothers? You know, are having, uh, you know, doing, doing everything that is prom- uh, promiscuous and uh, that goes against the teachings of a divine decree. Talking about alcoholism, you know, uh, no disrespect for the elders and this whole situation that there's an implosion of society. And one of the main factors being is alcohol and, and uh, drug abuse. And they've taken away religion from uh, the lives of people. You know, circular, uh, secularism has gone to such a level that today, you know, you uh, boys and girls are free to choose their gender. I don't know what that means, Mohammed, but this is a devilish uh, society we're living in. I want you to, you know, as a da'i, as a professional, you know, as a barrister, and who's someone that has seen the tapestry of a life, from you know being a pure society and being drowned into an impure environment, an impure you know a millennium that we have coming through. What goes through your mind, Mohammed? You know, you know, as a dai, I will say that sometimes part of our dawa is we try to mentally transport the person we're talking to to maybe to to Saudi Arabia, to Mecca and Medina, and then we tell them what life is like. How beautiful, how safe life is like in Mecca and Medina. That you love them with no threat and no fear. That there is no concern about your, your safety. There's no concern about drunken driving. There's no concern about crime. You leave your keys in the car and the car is running and they say, ha, huh? how baba? They say, yes. You leave your keys in the car and the car is running and you go pray. In the gold stores, they take a sheet. And they cover the gold store, the, the gold like that, thousands of reals of, of gold. It's just somebody could very easily become a millionaire, maybe handless in the process. But the long and short of it is this is how the community is supposed to love. This is we have, and most of us have been to Saudi Arabia. We've seen and experienced what it's like. It seems to be euphoric. It seems to be some sort of utopia that we could be living in. And yet, you know, when we come back home, and we su- we subjected to the evils and to the crime and the criminality of our community, so much so that we've actually become impervious to it. And we wake up and we find that five people were shot. Last night there was some more looting. After the moot- looting that took place in KZN, I think nobody even turns uh, a blind, uh, turns an, uh, turns an eyelid when we speak about lootings that may happen in, uh, in, in, in a local mall. It's like we've seen the worst of it. This is nothing, you know. Just be grateful they only held up three or five stores. It's like not happening around the country. But this is the reality. You know, <laughs> we're talking so much. 
uh, I, I got to say something that Don Matera said to me once. He says, when our house is burning, we run, we, we, we put the fire off, we'll do what we can to put the fire off. When somebody else's house is burning, we ask whose house is it? <laughs> you know, it makes you realize that we have become so selfish, so egotistical, that we are only concerned about ourselves. If we had, you know, if we had this concern about our community in our country, we'd make what we do whatever we can to make sure that the roots and the corruption and the criminality and these things are eradicated. Our neighbor is suffering because of the crime. It should affect us directly. Uh, in KZN, there was looting. It should have affected our, uh, us in, in Joburg as well. If our hearts never stirred, if we never shed an, uh, a tear for those that, that, that suffered and those that died and those that had losses, and our hearts never was yanked out for these things, and unfortunately, you know, then we're asking our question, whose house is it? You know, whose house actually burned down? You know, Mohammed, uh, whilst you're talking there, and I'm thinking about that Arab friend of mine, I met him the other day, and he said, Ya Shahi Shafaat. He said, Ya Ayyuhallazina Amanu la takarabu salat wa antum sukara hatta talamuma tukuluna wala junuban illa abirri sabilan hatta tahasilu. That's how he told it to me. And you know, Shala. those are the. You know, I'm trying to you all with Raifa Hall, Ya Muhammad, to say, Anna be Khair Shukran, Raifa. You know, I mean, I just gave you that guttural way he said it to me. It was Surah 4 and verse 41. Oh, you who believe, draw not near unto prayer when you are drunken, till you know that what you utter. Imagine, Muhammad, imagine when you are in that intoxicated state, you don't know what you're saying. And you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you, don't come near me. But sometimes, when people are not even drunk, they utter words that are worse than a drunkard. Talk to me, Muhammad. Gee, uh, uh, that verse is a very, very powerful verse. In fact, I mean, that was one of the earlier verses about alcoholism until Allah then prohibited altogether. So you could, you could drink in the early years of Islam, as long as you never came to Salah in a state of drunkenness. So you could possibly drink after the Isha Salah whilst it was still allowed and permitted. And this was the nature of how Allah subhanahu wa had introduced the hukam of alcohol. So verily, you know, drinking and gambling and idol worshipping and the divination of arrows Dedication of stones is the uh, handiwork of shaitan. But when that verse came down, that's when we hear the stories about the, how the Sahaba actually flooded the streets of Medina mm. with wine and the alcohol. So that was actually a verse that came down and prohibited alcohol altogether. So it's just a matter of time before the Sahaba realized that, you know what, it's going to become forbidden. But through all of this, you find that Nabi Sallallahu and some of the Sahaba would never even have touched alcohol, even while it was still allowed. And, and this came maybe from the previous scriptures where alcohol wasn't banned altogether all and automatically and from the previous generations. But to deal with it was a very sensitive issue. And 
uh, you know, the, the hukum came down in a way that the Sahaba and them were able to withdraw from the alcohol. And since then, alcohol has continued to remain forbidden and haram for us as Muslims. And there is no excuse for us. You know, they, we are a Muslim. We accept what the hukum of Allah is. And, you know, uh, as the hadith says, or, and I remember Ahmad Irat used to, used to, used to be very uh, adamant about this, that even a nap and even a tot is being made for, uh, forbidden for us. And he spoke a lot and he said, you know, so many millions in America are alcoholics and so many million are heavy drinkers. <laughs> heavy drinkers being the type of people who drink so much but don't classify themselves as being alcoholic, but they're heavy drinkers. And he mentioned so many more that are heavy drinkers. And you know what? There's no such a thing as drink responsibly. The minute you put that alcohol and a sharab to your lips, you have already done something from Islamic perspective that is haram. And number two, it just opens up the door to immorality. A hungry person, if you offer him a samosa, he'll eat two samosas. And if you offer him two samosas, he'll want three samosas because he understands he's hungry. You've got to understand the man is hungry. Similarly, alcohol has this. Nobody's thirsty when they drink alcohol. You know, you drink, when you're thirsty, you, you have your glass of water, you satiate it, you sort it out. But somehow with alcohol, you never seem to be satiated. There's always a demand for more. And this is how the shaitan works because the Quran uses the word, the handiwork of shaitan, meaning that shaitan is behind this. You know, this is his way of introducing you to a crime. And, and then on the day of Qiyamah, like shaitan says, Don't blame me. Don't blame me. You, you committed murder. You committed zina because of your own doing. You took that alcohol. If you never took that alcohol, you wouldn't have went down this road. You wouldn't be in this devastating position that you are today. And that is the, you know, that is the, the, the as you say, drink responsibly. This is a marketing tool by the SAB to get you to start drinking. Drink responsibly. What type of responsibility is there? After one, how many people have lost mm. their careers? How many people have lost their jobs? How many people just because of alcoholism, you know, being over the limit, being over... Uh, over a legal limit of being in, a, in an accident and killing somebody in an accident, their lives were ruined because of a little bit of fun that they were, uh, that they were getting. And at what stage is, should it be allowed is, is another question. I mean, you know, <laughs> we talk about 18 years. In America, it's like 21 years. You need to be 21 years. This, they're supposed to be more advanced and more liberal, but you need to be 21 years old in America to buy alcohol, maybe it's in some of the states, but you know, I know definitely in some parts of America, it's uh, it's 21 years. So you can get married when you're 18 years old, but you can't drink at your old wedding. You can become a father, but you still won't be old enough to drink. You need to be 21 years old to drink in America. You know, this is the foolishness. So a 21-year-old doesn't get drunk or what is more responsible than a 20-year-old. It's all stupid laws that they've created for themselves. And um, once again, you know, if, if we stick to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided for us, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made halal for us, and we stay away from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet has made haram for us, then we find that we will get the barakah, the blessings, they will be our lives, and our lifestyles will be very different from the kuffar. And, um, you know, big lessons for us. We may be a minority in this country, we may be a couple of percent, two, three, five. We're not even sure of the percentages nowadays. We may be a minority in this country, but I think you know we should we should take the opportunity. We've got we know people in the right places 
we know people who can make changes. We as a community ourselves, we can make the necessary changes. When we want to implement the Muslim marriages bill, then we find all these opportunities to get together and to and to start uh, uh, petitioning this this councillor, this minister, and you know, having meetings with this president and and and, and the, the presidencies and trying to get our agendas. But when it comes to these issues, that we know that we will get the support of non-Muslims alike, because there are non-Muslims out there many that will not take alcohol. They know and they have seen the effects of alcohol. And even offer, offered an opportunity when given these opportunities to imbibe and you know and to drink the terrorist rate. It's against my personal beliefs. The steer may be on to take alcohol. So yeah, I can speak Afrikaans. So you 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 thought it's you you really introduce a few Afrikaans words I made. I'm from Joburg. We speak Afrikaans as a second language. The Joburg guys are. Also buy a buy a transfer on Africa, ten years. But you know, you know, Mohammed. Uh, uh, you know, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, I'm really impressed. Uh, you know, Hafiz Mohammed Kubadia, attorney. You know, you talk about look at that eyes of the Quran we read, right? So that you know, you only come for prayer when you are, you know, you know what you are saying. Now, if that is, you know, look at the context. The context is it can be quoted out of context in that someone will say, yeah, you know what? I can go to mosque now. You know what? As long as I'm, yeah, I can have my tips and all, but as long as I'm okay, I know what I'm doing. But the fact is you have to read the Quran in its totality. You have to read the whole Quran to get the whole message that alcohol was abolished. It was abolished. And, you know, the Sahabas gave it up there and then. And this is a very important message for us to drive home, for especially the youngsters, because many are looking for excuses. No, says, no, but there's no, uh, uh, don't tell us what's the punishment and that, you know, because there's lots of these questioners coming through. And, you know, some of these Islamic sites uh, that are on uh, social media are run by whom, uh, Muhammad? By those Zionists that want to take our youth away. I want you to, you know, as a mashallah, as a qualified barrister, as a Hafiz al-Quran, to drive that point in. Do not read select, uh, the, the, the verses out of context or selective verses that will still needed some elaboration later on. Muhammad? Of course, alhamdulillah, you know, part of a person's inclination is that he needs to understand his religion better. I'm sometimes amazed at how much effort people would make in the dunya. And that's the reality. You know, people will go on to get their masters in whatever trade and profession that they've got. And people have gone to study many, many years. And yet sometimes when you want to have this type of Islamic discussion about basic Islamic hukum, then he's lost completely. And you ask yourself the question, you know, was it really necessary for him to have immersed himself in his dunya? Couldn't he have taken out one or two or three years of his life and said, you know what? I want to understand, even if I'm not half is, even if I never took that effort, I want to understand the message of the Quran. I want to understand what the Quran is telling me in context. And a person can only do this through, through ulama. A person, for a person to read the verses of the Quran, don't, you know, a person could very easily say, don't come near Salah if you are drunken. And, you know, any person listening to it automatically will say, oh, okay, okay, the Quran says you are drunk, so you mustn't, you mustn't pray. Uh, but it does mean that you can drink. Or, for example, 
For example, the Hadith of Nabi Sallallahu quite clearly says that uh, the Salah of a, a person that drinks and a drunkard, his Salah is not accepted for 40 days. So what if a person drinks today, he sobers up tomorrow, you meet him in the you say, my brother, it is time for Isha Salah, let's go to the Masjid. No, Nabi Sallallahu said that for 40 days my Salah is not accepted, so it, I can give up Salah for 40 days. It clearly shows that he has not understood what it is. He should be the first person in the masjid. Now that he's sobered up, he should be the first person in the masjid crying to Allah for forgiveness, asking Allah to forgive him and to, 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 to straighten out his life in a way that he doesn't go back. Sincere istighfar, sincere forgiveness is what is required. That way, even though and the Muslim said, "Is Salah is not accepted for what it is. It is through the mercy of Allah Subhanahu that this person's life can get changed. He's not flouting the law. He's not being hard nut about it. He's actually feeling remorseful, and he's saying to himself, you know what, I wish that I was not in this particular situation. Now that I drank last night, how do I get out of the situation? It is only Allah that can forgive me. Nobody else can forgive him. And, and, and this is... This is, this is the condition of a believer that, you know what, he's going to make mistakes from time to time. He's going to, oh, he's going to, uh, he, uh, said, uh, uh, that all of the children of Adam, I'm going to make mistakes. But the best of those sinners, the best of those that make mistakes are those that turn to Allah and seek his forgiveness. Those that, the tawab, those that turn back to Allah. Those that say to themselves, you know what, Allah, I'm, I, I made, I committed a huge sin. And just today, I, you're the only person that forgives, forgive me for the sin. But part of a person's reformation, part of a person's inclination to understand the deen means that whether you're 40 years old, you're 50 years old, you're 60 years old, when you sit and you speak to ulama, senior ulama, knowledgeable ulama, they tell you every day is good, it needs to, something needs to be learned for the day. Whether it's tafsir or whether it's hadith, if you know hadith, commit the hadith to memory. If you know Quran, Quran, commit the Quran to memory. We, you know, we found medical science today has advanced in so many ways. And this is another topic that we find that everything that they tell us today is the same thing that we saw told us 1400 years ago. The fact that we Muslims would, for example, would fast. And today they're telling you, you're using words like intermittent fasting, Fasting for 12 hours, 16 hours, 17 hours is a way for the body to reheal itself. Autophagy, they call it, where the body, the cells in the body actually start revitalizing and rejuvenating. It eats itself and rejuvenates itself at the same time. And what happens to your brain? They say your brain actually becomes more active. Look at the Hufas. While they are fasting, they are reading and they're making their door and they're reading their Quran and they're preparing for the Darawi. And their brains are sharper while they were fasting, but common sense will tell you otherwise. That you don't have energy in your body, you don't have sugar in your body. This is Islam told us that, you know what, if we, we limit what we eat, if we limit our intake of food and drink and nourishment, then we actually, we, we, we're fasting, our body is fasting, but our body becomes more efficient, more active. We spend less time in the toilet, we spend less time on the table, and we're spending more time now doing the things that, Islamic thing would benefit us in the day. Some of the, the elders or the, the say the early scholars, they were renowned in a day, they would finish a whole Quran khatam. Today we don't even have time to read one subara. We, we, we scram scrambling around when it comes to a quarter subara. There were people who used to read one Quran every day. This was their lifestyle. And some was even more. But 
What I'm saying is today, how our lives have become that we actually distance ourselves from Islam and we're not benefiting from the very basic understanding of what Islam is about. Oh, brilliant indeed. And you know, I was thinking of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he said, my utmost happiness lies in prayer. You know, prayer, you can't beat it. You just can't beat it, Muhammad. And you know, you made a lot of valid points there indeed. And what was going through my mind? You know, imagine there you have a judge who could have had a, you know, a whole weekend of alcoholism, drinking and so forth, comes to court on a Monday and pronounces a judgment on an individual. The fact is he imbibes alcohol and perhaps he succumbed to alcoholism. What do the Lord uh, do? I mean, uh, is the state aware? Do the state uh, give them uh, breathalyzers before they go on and take on a case like this? You know, it, it, uh, you, uh, actually you've got a man's career or a woman's whole life in front of you. You can make or break that individual just by you, the type of sentences that you're passing upon them, uh, Muhammad. You know, today with the social media doing its rounds, we're coming across videos of policemen that are drunk on duty, traffic officers that are drunk on duty. I've seen clubs of pilots that were actually called back out of the plane, and they said, you need to do a breathalyzer test, maybe because somebody smelled alcohol on his breath. They lost their careers. Each of these people, police officers, traffic officers, pilots, we see that, and we know for a fact that it's much more rampant than what we are seeing, what we what meets the eye. Maybe it's something that we need to include as a standard, brilliant idea, that before a judge assumes a role every morning, before his role as, 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 as the, uh, the guardian of the community, and that he's going to now be championing the rights of the victims, is he himself in any way inebriated? Is he in any way intoxicated? Is there some way we should ascertain that the judge is actually at his full mental capacity? And even if your blood alcohol level is low, person who's been drinking um, you know, over, over the years, you find that his mental capacity automatically starts, you start killing off your brain cells. So mm. what are we doing? What is he doing to his brains? What are we doing to the brains as a, as a community? And you think to yourself, but you're such an educated person. You're a judge. You probably got a couple of degrees behind your name. You have a master's. You probably have this. You probably have that. But at the end of the day, when you become drunk, you know better than the dog in the street. You're running around there, laughing, giggling for no reason, getting on like a madman. Is, is this the level that we as human beings have? have degraded ourselves and we succumbed to these types of uh, issues. And, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a sober person looking at the situation, what comes to your mind? This is the early work of the shaitan. This is the early work of the devil. So if he wants you to commit a sin, if, if he wants, for, you know, you, you become so susceptible to even the jinn and the jinnats, they wait for these types of opportunities where you let down your guard so that they can, you know, they can take control of you. And uh, this, is, this is the unfortunate reality. And Islam, once again, you know, the champion for us as believers, knowing full well what the consequences, what, what it is for us as Muslims. Alhamdulillah, we that have been brought up in, in a good Islamic Muslim environment, we never ever have taken part in this. So for us, it's foreign. It's, you know, somebody offers me and you a drink, we don't know what it tastes like, it has no, we can't even salivate in, our mouth can't even water and say, wow. You know, like a vegetarian, maybe if you used to eat meat in the early years and you offer him a steak, you'll still maybe salivate and say, 
wow, the steak looks good. Or even even a smoker after many years of giving up, you know, he looks at somebody smoking and he, and, and, and he listens for the, the guy, like they say, you know, he, 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 he wish he, he could take a puff again. But, but if you've never had a cigarette all your life, it means nothing to you. So alcohol means nothing. And alhamdulillah, that in itself is such a blessing. We maybe because of that, we are able to perform at our full mental capacity. We are able to, we don't have consequences in our life as a result of these types of um, uh, alcoholic and drunken behavior. Alhamdulillah for that. Uh, so, so yes, Islam once again champions itself to be the solution to the problems of humanity. Yeah, Muhammad, you make a valid point indeed. Uh, the breathalyzer is such an important thing. And as you said, uh, you know, police officers are succumbing uh, to alcoholism and, you know, charging people on the on the spot. And sometimes, you know, a police officer, uh, you know, is he uh, protecting you? He's there to protect you. He's there to reason for you. Uh, you know, he there to, uh, he should be reason, uh, reasonable. He should be uh, listening to people and uh, he should be looking for every excuse of being helpful and even forgiving people. But uh, many say, you know, it's the P is a police officer and the other P is for the punishment officer. Generally, you find these guys, they go out on a punishment spree, you know, take out the books and start finding people so that the more fines they give out, the more coffers come in uh, for the municipality and maybe they get a commission on that, and uh, which is uh, rather very unfair on, on, on people. And then we question the type of recruitment that uh, government is doing to get people like this into you know, a, a position which is uh, very important, but uh, which uh, you know, maybe is abating uh, law, uh, disorder instead of law. Uh, your thoughts, sir, Mohammed? You know, you know, issuing a fine to a drunk driver has short-term benefit. It keeps potentially drunk drivers of, uh, away from drinking. But look at the consequences in billions every year that we're spending. What on the third-party fund? How many billions of rands are being paid out by government by the third-party fund in regard to motor vehicle accidents? Look at the insurance companies. How many billions of rands? are being paid out every year to repair motor vehicles that have been caused as a result of drunken driving. Look at the lives that have been lost, how much type of life insurances. Look at the families that have been destroyed. Look at the hospitals, how much of our resources, maybe 10 or 20% of our resources go directly towards these types of criminal behaviors. Look at the amount of salaries, how many more doctors and nurses and machines and equipment. You know, the person goes into a theater and operating room maybe because as a result of an accident um, and he was drunk, he's taken up the place of somebody that could have had cancer or renal surgery or some sort of immediate medical unavoidable um, operation. So we may, you know, find that all that have a limited effect. The bigger picture we're missing at the same time. If we have to just count up, this country would move out of a deficit into a positive. We'd find that, uh, that, that we would not need to employ Cuban doctors and foreign doctors, we would have enough resources to look after our own people. And we would actually have a surplus and a leftover that we could create jobs and we could start working and diversifying the country's resources instead of creating jobs in the alcohol industry. Let's create jobs now in the medical industry, the IT industry, in jobs where we know that the country will benefit and people will benefit. I mean, you know, you look at first world countries and the problems that they're having with alcoholism, 
and these types of problems, surely for us as a nation, we should think to ourselves, you know, if, if we can't see and learn from the lesson that's happening in America, in Australia, is Australian dream or alcohol uh, somewhere along the line I was reading, I came across that they're the highest consumption consumers of beer in the world. And, you know, you to think about it, it's, 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 it's something in South Africa is not far behind. I think South Africa could have been in the first 10, somewhere 5, 7, 10 or something. So <laughs> it's a reality that we need to see where is the country going. And Islam is the answer to the problems. I think that's a that's a brilliant point where we can stop at uh, Muhammad. It's run out of time, but Alhamdulillah, Islam is a solution to all that. And inshallah, maybe we can hold the whole uh, program on how we could do dawah and, you know, use uh, uh, these eyes of, you know, or get the people in and to let them get away from uh, racism, get away from alcoholism, from tribalism and so forth. Muhammad, you were absolutely brilliant uh, this evening. And inshallah, you uh, quickly your parting words. Shazakallah, once again, you know, uh, Shafat, you always catch me impromptu. You give me, uh, we, we have a topic that we basically can't have much to prepare except through personal experiences. And Alhamdulillah, you know, uh, Islam has given us that foundation that we can use our resources and what we learn about Islam. Some of these things that I mentioned is imperative. It's foundational for any da'i. You should know the verses. You should know the arguments. You should know how to respond to these types of questions, especially when they come from non-Muslim audiences or non-Muslim uh, people that you meet from time to time. Bring forth Islam in the manner that they can understand. Put the best foot forward and talk to them about how the, the purity of Islam continues even 1,400 years down the line. Alhamdulillah. Jazakallah once again to yourself and your listeners. It's a beautiful Friday evening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha Zan and inshallah when we get back it will be time for Wasail al-Alam as-Sadiqah truthful news. Let's go for the Isha Zan.